0: Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the ways in which you manifest your glory to your disciples and the people in Jerusalem for those 40 days. We know, Lord, that you are in far greater glory now. Grant us a glimpse this morning and help us to be changed as well. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning. I would like you to use your imagination for a few moments. Uh, first of all, I would like you to imagine a group of 13-year-old boys riding their skateboards through the mall, and a security guard confronts them and tells them to stop. Or um, imagine a 16-year-old girl who has just been told by her parents to clean her room. Or imagine a young couple who have just bought a house. And then they're admonished by their HOA to paint it a different color. (laughs) Or imagine a middle-aged man who's been directed by the flight attendant to fasten his seatbelt. The question that comes to each of their mouths in each of these situations is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Now, that question is not really a question of identity. It's not like, Please tell me, how is it that you conceive of yourself as a person? (laughs) That's not the question, right? It's a question about authority. It's more like, where do you get off? (laughs) Who gave you the right? Who do you think you are? It doesn't matter who we are. The fact is that there are people in our lives who have authority over us, whether at our workplace or at school or on the highways or in the friendly skies or in our neighborhoods. What that means is that our lives are inherently shaped by the authority of those around us and how we relate to that authority. Let's be clear, we don't always think of authority as a bad thing. Sometimes we seek authority. We, we want to hear from people who are the authorities on a particular topic. We want the authorities, law enforcement, to, to protect and serve us, right? Right? Yet at the same time, we often resist authority. We would rather be our own authority, or at least we would like to decide for ourselves which authorities we'll acknowledge and which ones we won't, and the times at which we do so. We resonate with the theme song from the early 2000s TV show, Malcolm in the Middle, which goes like, you're not the boss of me now, you're not the boss of me now, you're not the boss of me now, and you're not so big. This morning, we celebrate the Feast of the Ascension, and did you know that this moment in history is profoundly connected to this idea of authority? There's a good reason why the church has chosen to acknowledge the Ascension of Christ as a major feast day, one of the seven worthy of our best attention. We can probably already see that Jesus' Ascension is marked by a departure from the realm of earth to the realm of heaven, a return there. And often we end up amused Or even confused at uh, why Jesus chose to depart in this way. And we often just wonder, you know, what did it look like? But if we only ask what did it look like, we miss the far far more important question for today, and that is, what does it mean? What does it mean? The way that the New Testament describes the ascension, and thus the way that the church has understood it, is that the ascension is the moment when the Son of God returns to His rightful place as the supreme authority over all creation. But this time, it's a little different. This time, he rules and reigns as the incarnate Jesus, whose death and resurrection makes him the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Uh, Two weeks ago, the, the world watched, I didn't, but the world did, the coronation of King Charles. I just forgot about it. There was a time when Charles a long time, longer than he probably wanted, lacked authority to reign. But on one definable day, whether seen as September 8th when the Queen Mother died, or on May 6th when the crown was finally put on his head, Charles was given the authority to be the British monarch. It was a day. In a similar way, the ascension of Christ marks a coronation moment, a day on which there is cosmic investiture of divine authority. And yet that may be where the similarities end. What took place in Westminster Abbey at Charles's investiture was public for the whole world to see, broadcast. You only missed it because you forgot or didn't want to. What took place in the throne room of heaven at Christ's investiture was seen by the heavenly host but not visible to us, not even visible to the disciples. And yet Charles's authority affects us very little, but Christ's authority affects us supremely. The appointed psalm for today is Psalm 110, and it's called a psalm of enthronement. There are a few of these. And King David's words in the psalm, while containing an original meaning for for him, the, the divinely appointed king of Israel, more importantly, they contain a prophecy of the true king to come Verses 1 to 2 declare this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I shall make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The way that the New Testament interprets this psalm is to say that it has been fulfilled in the crucified, resurrected, and now ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the echoes of this in the epistle lesson for today from Ephesians chapter one, where Paul says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. To name a second, the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 1, After making purification for sins, Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Only to Christ The Ascension of Jesus is an authoritative day in the history of authority. And to better understand why and how that is, today I'd want us to to inspect more closely this topic, this theme of authority and its meaning. I believe that throughout the Scriptures, a theology of authority is incredibly important, especially because I think for a lot of us it's very underdeveloped in our minds. And yet I'll admit, authority is quite confusing to grapple with, and it makes me, as I'm sure it makes you, uncomfortable." So I'm wading through this with a measure of humility, as always, but it's palpable to me this week, and certainly this has been one of those weeks where I wish for more time to study and prepare. And yet, even though there are areas of uncertainty, there are some things that are quite clear, and it's those things I want to share with you this morning. As we think about and speak about authority, we can often use that word interchangeably with the word power. And yet, there's actually an important nuance between these words. Power means the strength or the ability to bring about a desired purpose. You have the power. The Greek word for that word is is dunamis, power. Authority, on the other hand, is exousia, and it means the right to act or exercise power. It's what we mean when we say that someone is authorized to do something. They have the authority to use power. So having power is different than having the right to use it. And those two things, power and authority, don't always go together. Case in point, about two months ago, our family adopted a puppy. This is where you say, aww. (laughs) Our our daughter, Hannah, adores animals. It's been uh, the overwhelming and constant interest of hers for years. And for as long as I can remember, she's been asking us, of course, very stereotypically, to get a puppy. And we've resisted. Well, Hannah has become increasingly shrewd. At family prayer, whenever uh, we would ask her if there's anything that she would like to pray about, of course she's going to ask that we would pray that God would give us a puppy. Now, um, it's a hard thing to do, to pray that God would give you a puppy when you know that you're the one who's not letting it happen. Um, It took a while. Eventually, we relented, and we adopted Cruz into our family. Now, Hannah had no authority to make that decision. That belonged to me and Christy. It was our right. But over the course of a few years, Hannah discovered that she possessed some power, She exerted influence over us. Now, as an example of the opposite, since I've returned from Rwanda, it seems as though Cruz has developed some habits in my absence. He's gone for about two two weeks. Namely, at bedtime, he's a great dog, but, but at bedtime, when I take him outside, when I take him outside to go potty, he refuses to go. He won't go. Instead, he cowers and he runs back to the door. It doesn't matter what I do, whether I'm calm or whether I'm stern. He just won't listen to me. Don't I have authority over this dog? I am his owner. I do. Don't shake your head. I have the authority over this dog. What I lack is power. I lack the power to make him pee. Now, if Christy comes out, he does it right away. That's authority and power together. Now, not surprisingly, Scripture teaches that there is one being with all authority in the universe, namely God, and God's supreme authority comes from the reality that God authored all reality. turns out there is an important connection between authoring and having authority. Why does a father and a mother have authority over their child? Because they authored it. They authored it. Why does a novelist have authority over the content of her book? Because she authored it. Likewise, God created all things by the word of his power, and he therefore has authority over all that exists, seen and unseen. Consider for a moment how we talk about God's word. We believe in the authority of Scripture. Why? Because we believe it is God's divine revelation to us. It's His Word. God authored it. And He, through it, has the authority to tell us what is true and false. To tell us what is good and what is not good. To tell us how we are to live and how we are not to live. It's authoritative in our lives. Now, God's authority is not the only authority that exists in creation, right? God authored all sorts of other kinds of authority as well. There is authority in the created order. There's authority in the family, in the church, in the government, and even in the spiritual realm. All this authority derives from God's authority, from nowhere else. For example, we can see this in Genesis as God creates humanity, and he grants them the authority to fill the earth and subdue it. God's authority given to them. Or hear what Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. In the season of ordinary time, this is a good time for me to share with you. We're going to begin a sermon series on the book of Romans, and we're going to follow the appointed lectionary texts throughout ordinary time, which means we're going to actually cover this passage in greater detail later on in the year. For now, I want you to understand what Paul is saying here. First of all, he is not saying that God puts his stamp of approval on every role of authority that exists, or every person in authority, or every manner of exercising authority, um, in the same way that he did not approve of how Adam and Eve used the authority that he gave to them. And yet, Paul is validating the fact that if authority exists, it finds its rightful source in God. There's no other source. In other words, we shouldn't despise it. Consider the conversation that Jesus has with Pontius Pilate before his execution. In John chapter 19, he says, Pilate said to him, Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus acknowledges the authority, and yet he notifies Pilate that no authority comes except only authority comes from God, therefore, his authority must be from the same source. Now, Jesus isn't validating Pontius Pilate's character, he's not commending his rule. Jesus is not going to pat him on the back for turning him over to be crucified, but he does acknowledge that there is no authority except God's. Therefore, to submit to God's authority includes submitting to the authorities that God has given. This is what the Scripture says. Now, we'll talk more about this in just a few minutes, but it's here I want to return to Christ's ascension into heaven. And I want you to imagine, and we get this imagery in Psalm 110, the the, the image of the king's scepter as a symbol of authority. God holds that scepter as the rightful ruler of the universe. He's the divine author of all things, right? Imagine God with a scepter. Colossians 1 makes it clear that Jesus, the Son of God, had a rightful grip on that scepter as he is Son of God. In Colossians 1, it says, For by Him, Christ, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, whether visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or other authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. The Son of God. However, despite rightfully holding the scepter of authority, God the Son emptied Himself. He laid down the scepter to become incarnate as a human being and redeem His creation. That's the gospel. Philippians 2 describes this very notably. Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see how Christ submitted himself to authority? But while it was God's sovereign plan to relinquish authority in order to save sinners who rejected his authority, it was also God's plan that he would take it up again when all was accomplished. And this is the ascension. This is the ascension. Christ ascends into heaven, retakes the scepter, But this time it's different. He's not just God. He is the God-man. God the Son lays down the scepter, but God the Son, eternally joined to human flesh, is the one to take it up again. In other words, humanity finds itself pulled up into the Godhead, redeemed by Christ, experiencing once again, since Adam Adam and Eve's time, the sheer goodness of God's supreme authority. And indeed, it is good. Jesus shows us what true divine authority looks like. And it looks like exercising authority with self-giving love. Self-giving love. When we understand the true nature of authority as God made it, and as God himself wields it, We are not repelled by authority. We're drawn to it, as if we were made for it. I love how Anglican theologian N.T. Wright puts this. He says, To embrace the ascension is to heave a sigh of relief, to give up the struggle to be God, and with it the inevitable despair at our constant failure and then to enjoy our status as creatures. Image-bearing creatures, but creatures nonetheless. The ascension invites us to relinquish the pattern of our sinful human nature, which is to resist authority, wherever it appears. This is what human beings do. From Adam and Eve down to us, it's the true nature of what sin is. We distrust the authority of Almighty God. We're not sure He has our best interest in mind. We're not sure we want to listen. And so we make ourselves into little authoritative gods to do what is right in our own eyes. This is not only a way to understand what each act of sin actually is, resisting God's authority and claiming to be our own. Namely, it also helps us understand ways of life that in themselves are a resisting of authority. Here are two examples, and both of them are extreme. First of all, there are some people who resist authority by seeking to conquer it. Wherever they see it, they want to conquer it. They grasp for it. They strive to be the masters of their own fates and the fates of others. And eventually, they they find themselves at the top of the ladder. They're commanders and chief executives and top politicians, the worst of whom we would call authoritarians. On the other hand, there are those who resist authority by seeking to escape it. By getting as far away from it as possible, they work hard to cut themselves free of anyone else's demands, even if it means cutting themselves out of the fabric of society. And eventually they find themselves as vagabonds or recluses who need no one and answer to no one. These are two very different responses to authority, but in either case, it's still the self Who is the authority? Not God. Not God. And wherever we make that our aim, to be the authority, not God. We are wrong. And the way the Apostle Peter describes this human impulse in me and in you and in every human who's ever lived is as wickedness. Wickedness. He says of the wicked in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, they are those who despise authority, gods or any manifestation thereof. How do you feel about authority? <laughs> it probably doesn't make you feel warm and fuzzy. Probably not. And I think it's probably because we are, we are products of our culture. It doesn't make our culture feel warm and fuzzy Our culture, in many ways, despises authority. Our nation was born out of rebellion against authority. We are fiercely independent. We are inherently suspicious of those in authority. We want no authorities in our lives except those we choose. And all the abuses of authority that we see around us, and they are everywhere only further convince us that we are right to feel this way. If I called you a bunch of sheeple, (laughs) I doubt you would like that. I doubt you would like me to imply that you are just the kind of people who obey authorities because you can't think for yourselves, you can't make your own decisions, and you just conform. And in one sense, okay, no problem. I don't want to be a sheeple either. Christians aren't supposed to be mindlessly following instructions. We aren't supposed to be those who just wander after the Pied Pipers in our culture. We have to be wiser and more shrewd than that, like Hannah. But Christians are called sheep after all, right? Are we identifiable? as God's flock, do we have a shepherd after all? If we embrace the way that Scripture talks about us and about our authority, then we must embrace that we are always to be mindful of Christ who leads us and calls us to submit to His authority and wherever He has chosen for it to be present in His creation. That's what the Scripture says. In the story of Scripture, we are told of many threats to God's good creation. Authority is actually not one of them. Instead, authority is described as something inherently good in the created order. All authority belongs to God, and all authority that exists is given by God. And that means, to honor Christ's authority, we honor the authorities that Christ has established in their various realms. To citizens... 1 Peter 2 says, honor the emperor. To servants, 1 Peter 2 says, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. To children, Ephesians 6 says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. To wives, Colossians 3 says, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. To church people, Hebrews 13 says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now I know that there are different hermeneutics and different interpretations for understanding how these passages apply, but you cannot read the New Testament and get away from a doctrine of authority and what it means in God's good creation. These passages are not saying that imperial government is God's design or that slavery is has God's stamp of approval or that God doesn't care about bad parents or that husbands are God's favorite no matter what kind of men they are or that God turns a blind eye to abusive church leaders. Far from it. That's evil, not good. But instead, the Scriptures do speak about authority as good before spoiled. And if we let the Scriptures speak above the cultural noise around us, and above the impulses of our own hearts within us, we will find, we will find in the Scriptures a freeing vision of the proper function of authority among the people of God. We will find it. We'll find it. Because authority isn't the problem. Authority is not the thing that Christ has come to free us from. Does that make sense? Christ did not come to free us from authority. The American gospel might say that. It's not the gospel in here. Instead, first of all, Christ has come to free us from our desire to throw off His authority because we just want to choose for ourselves. That's the first thing that God has come to redeem us from. The second thing that God has come to redeem us from are those entities who do not exercise their God-given authority for His, good and for, our, for His glory and for our good, to free us from them. And that freedom comes eschatologically. As the kingdom of God makes its way into the world more and more and more. In other words, beloved, the problem is not that we have authority in our lives. Rather, the problems are resistance to God's authority and abuse of authority. And that's a very different way of looking at it. Christ's incarnation and his death and his resurrection and his ascension, what the church refers to as the Paschal Mystery, are presented in Scripture as the solution to these problems. The resistance of God's authority and the abuse of God's given authority. In the Paschal Mystery, we are called to embrace the absolute authority of God the Son, who exercises that authority through loving service. And also, when we embrace Him as our Lord, we learn that all authority is and will one day be held accountable to His authority. No one is off the hook. No one. Now, I would guess that for most of you, the burning question in your minds right now is not, so tell us, Peter, how how can we better submit to authority for the glory of God? It's probably not your question right now. Your question is probably something more along the lines of, tell us when we get to rebel. (laughs) What about my country? What about my parents? What about my church? What about my marriage? What about, what about, what about, what about? What are we supposed to do when when the authority over us mistreats us? The Bible has a lot to say about that. What are we supposed to do when the authority over us wants us to disobey God's commands? The Bible has a lot to say about that. These are good questions which deserve good answers, and we're going to get to them in time, particularly when we get to Romans chapter 13. And what I've laid today or tried to lay today as a foundation will help us as we discuss those themes later on. Those are good questions, but they are hard questions. And they take humility, and they take patience, and they take hope, and they take faith. But for today, I think it's important that we suspend that line of questioning. We're not going to ignore it. We're suspending it. Understood? We are not ignoring it. We will get there, I promise. But we are suspending it for today because... I think when we suspend it for a time, we can better breathe the sigh of relief that N.T. Wright talks about. You see, when we rush to questions about how we can protect ourselves from unjust authorities, we might miss the most important part of a theology of authority, and that is that Christ has it all. That Christ has it all. Whatever you're experiencing in your life, under the authorities that you're under, Christ has it all. Christ has it all. You are not his slaves. You are his brothers and sisters, his beloved, those whom he would use his authority to serve and to love and breathe a sigh of relief. Embracing the authority of the ascended Christ frees us. It does not subjugate us. It frees us from the attempt to be our own gods. It frees us from the consequences of our own rebellion. It frees us from worry about what might happen to us if we're subordinate. It frees us to become what we were made to be. And it frees us to worship as we were created to do. The ascension of Jesus presents every one of you, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not yet a Christian, with one question. Will you embrace Christ's authority over your life? Will you embrace it? Becoming a follower of Jesus is to declare Jesus is the Lord. And you surrender to Him the rule and reign over your life. You let Him have the authority that rightfully belongs to Him and not to you. So, so beloved, today I I, I want us to be imitators of Jesus' diverse band of disciples Men and women who witnessed the resurrected Christ and then witnessed the ascended Christ. And this is what it says in Luke chapter 24, which we heard today. And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And he blessed them, then parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they Worshipped him. And they worshipped him. May we worship him. Our supreme authority. The good, right, and true Lord of all that is. Amen?